connected to Jesus Christ, our good and mighty King. If you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, I may need to deal with what seems to be a small distraction in some of your minds. What's up with the collar? I thought this was North Wake Baptist. Is it North Wake Anglican? What is this? Hey, I saw him in the lobby earlier. He didn't have a collar on then. Where do you get the collar? Relax. It's a clip-on. Okay? <laughs> you could say, it's a fake. Okay? So relax. But now some of you are thinking, hey, if the collar's fake, what else is fake? What else did the pastor just put on so that he could stand up in front of us? Maybe he didn't really study all week. Maybe he just went to sermons.com and downloaded his sermon. Maybe he really doesn't set aside time to pray. Maybe he's playing video games on his iPad. He's not praying. What if it's all just a show? What if it's all just a clip-on kind of faith? All of it. Well, if that was true, then I would be what Jesus calls a hypocrite. Now, in 2001, this guy, Lance Armstrong, made an anti-doping commercial for Nike in which he strongly disavowed using illegal drugs. In the commercial, Armstrong boldly states, this is my body, and I can do whatever I want to it. I can push it, study it, tweak it, listen to it. Everybody wants to know what I'm on. What am I on? I'm on my bike, busting my backside six hours a day. What are you on? Now, in 2006, during sworn testimony in a dispute, over his $5 million bonus, Armstrong said he wouldn't take drugs because he had too much to lose. He said, the faith of all the cancer survivors, Lance Armstrong, as you know, is a cancer survivor, the faith of all the cancer survivors around the world is at stake. Everything I do off the bike would go away too. It's not about money for me. It's about the faith that people have put in me over the years. So all of that would be erased. And then in October 2012, Lance Armstrong was stripped of his seven Tour de France victories and permanently banned from cycling and any world anti-doping agency sanctioned events because, by his own admission, he was doping. The whole time he was doping. When he was accusing other people of being liars about his doping, when he was saying he would never dope because of what it would do to cancer survivors, he was doping. So it's, it's not just that Lance was a cheat. That was bad enough. But to present yourself as one thing while you're intentionally being another, then you're not just a cheat. You are what Jesus calls a hypocrite. Um, twice in his great Sermon on the Mount, the, the king's speech, as it were, Jesus says to those of us who follow him, don't. Don't be like the hypocrites, okay? Don't, don't be like the hypocrites. He's going to, in the, a couple chapters from now, in chapters 22 to 24 of Matthew, nine 
times Jesus is going to blast the religious leaders as hypocrites, pretenders, actors concerning their faith. Jesus is telling us over and over again. Matter of fact, we saw it in last week's passage as he drove corrupt vendors out of the temple. Um, Don't be like the hypocrites. Do whatever you have to do to root hypocrisy out of your life. Um, And all of this explicit teaching about hypocrisy, it's happening right in the temple. You remember from from last week, Jesus entered that temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. We talked last week about how for Jesus to focus his anger on the temple itself was to strike a prophetic blow at the political and economic and spiritual heart of the nation. So now, uh, today as we think about it, it's important to realize that this building is not like the temple. In the New Testament, we are the temple. But having, having said that, what if Jesus showed up here this morning, what would he do? Would he go about healing the lame and the sick? Or would he be turning tables over and running people out? Would you be someone that he healed? Or would you be someone that he ran out? Is there stuff going on in your heart Maybe in secret places that nobody else knows. Maybe nobody outside your family knows. Maybe nobody knows. That that could make you fit the label of a hypocrite. Listen close. Jesus is going to say in Matthew 23, he's going to say, um, he's not going to say that. He's going to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. This morning, we want to honestly ask God by His Spirit to show us our inside. And And not let us be satisfied with just dressing up on Sunday morning, putting on the collar, and make believe. So we want to pray towards that end as we walk through Matthew 21, a few verses together this morning. But as we get ready to do that, I would, uh, I'd like to, you know, one of the perks of my job, I can pray about anything I want up here. And so there's something that I just want you guys to pray with me about this morning. Um, You know, my best friend in the neighborhood, um, his name's Rob. And his wife's name is Kelly. And I found out yesterday that her mom is dying of uh, liver disease. And they give her just a couple days, maybe a week. And so she's flown up to be with her mom. And they are not part of our church. They're not part of any church. Um, So if you would pray with me that through this, God would become their comfort and hope. Because they don't have that right now. And their names are Rob and Kelly. So 
Let's pray, if you would. Father, life in a, in a broken, sin-wracked world is hard. It's hard for us. And to face a death stared in the eyes without a sure hope, without the hope of the gospel, I don't know how people do it. And we all have friends that are doing it. God, I pray that uh, you might in your kindness become Rob and Kelly's comfort and hope these days and all their days. And, and for so many of us who have friends that we love, who carry, still carry the burden of their own sin and face the ravage of sin in our world without you, Lord, have mercy on them all, we pray. And this morning we're going to open up your son's teaching to us. Help us not to evade it. Help us not to um, excuse it. God, we want to welcome it and respond well to what it might be saying, hard as it might be about us in our own hearts. So we ask for a kindness to us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, we're going to start in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 21, if you want to open your Bibles up there. Uh, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, Jesus is lodging outside of the city in this last week of his life, and he's traveling back in each day. Uh, on this morning, this is probably Tuesday morning, um, best, best we can tell, of that last week in which Jesus was crucified on Friday. This is Tuesday, a Tuesday event. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, Jesus became hungry. And I just want to stop there and just think about that. The Son of God became hungry. Matthew just mentions it in passing. You know, this is an everyday event. Um, God in the flesh became hungry. One writer put it this way, The Lord whom the mouths of babes praise is also the man whose stomach growls. Um, he, as the ancients used to put it, he was very God and very man. And this is one of those remarkable little just glimpses of, of the, how Jesus is like us. He became like us. He's hungry, seeing a fig tree by the wayside. He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So what is up with that? Why is Jesus cursing the fig tree? I mean, I know people get grumpy when they get hungry, but really... Is that what's happening here? Um, there's a whole lot, if you read about this story, a whole lot of people have written about when figs ripen and when you can eat them and what season figs come into edibleness. Um, and regardless of all those horticultural insights, it seems to me that Jesus is making a point that's really attached to the story that just happened. We talked about it last week when Jesus was in the temple cleansing it, 
driving everyone out of the temple because of their hypocrisy. Some have said that what Jesus is doing here is an enacted parable. He's acting out what he just taught, or in our case, what he just did. He's now acting out a lesson for his disciples and for us to learn. Jesus is condemning the tree here for its show of fruit, but lack thereof. Look at the tree. Got lots of leaves. Evidently, you would expect it to have some fruit. Not the case. Not the case. And that's really, when we talk about hypocrisy, that's really at one level what hypocrisy is. It is a showy fruitlessness. Um, It's, I suppose you could say, it's false advertising. The tree says, come get a fig, but there's no figs. Now, I want to make sure that you understand this morning that the solution is not to change your advertising. I had a, a, a dear friend in, back when we lived in Texas, and uh, she had a heavy foot. <laughs> she drove fast, and she knew it was wrong. She knew it dishonored the Lord. She didn't want um, to do that, but she had a really hard time breaking this habit, so she decided to take some drastic action, so she took the Christian bumper sticker off her car. <laughs> See, we're not, we're not talking about here the, solu- the preferred solution is not to stop professing faith, to stop coming to the church. Some of you are like, well, honey, pastor told me not to come back anymore. I'd be a hypocrite if I did. That's not the preferred solution. Okay? The preferred solution is to bear fruit in keeping with your professed faith, not merely cease your profession of faith. Someone, um, someone has defined a hypocrite this way. It's someone who complains there is too much sex and violence on their DVR. That's hypocrisy. But don't miss, the stakes are really high here. Jesus judges this tree and it dies. Jesus has nothing good to say about hypocrites. Nothing. His strongest words are reserved for hypocrites. We're going to get a huge dose of this. This is really one of the primary teaching focuses of Jesus last week. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't fall into that. Don't give yourself to that. In chapter 24, he says, the master of that servant is going to come at a day when he doesn't expect him and an hour when he does not know and he's going to cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to be there. You don't want to become a hypocrite. And we become hypocrites when we settle into our hypocrisy. Okay, there's some, tragically, there's some elements of hypocrisy in all of us, all right? There, there are things that we are, are saying and are doing don't line up all the time. But when we settle into that hypocrisy, and rather than root it out, rather than, than repent of it and say, God, help me change, we, we protect it. We, we, we excuse it. We might even deny that it really is what, what it is. Um, there's, uh, just this year, uh, there's a town in Northern Ireland, Ireland that was 
expecting, uh, it was in June of this year, the world's eight most powerful leaders gathered in the, in the town of Enniskillen, Ireland, for the G8 summit. And it's interesting, in preparation for their special guests, people like Barack Obama, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Russian President Vladimir Putin, the town, what they did, because they'd been hit really bad by economic times in recent days, and a lot of stores had closed, they put up fake storefronts. So that if you drove by and glanced at the windows, it would look like it was a flourishing shop. But in reality, the shop had closed. Um, there's a reporter for the Irish Times, and he says that uh, they filled the shop front windows with a picture of what was the business before it went bankrupt or closed. So grocery shops, butcher shops, pharmacies, etc., place large photographs in the windows. So if you drove past, you thought, there's a pharmacy, there's a butcher shop when it was just an empty storefront. Where are you with your hypocrisy? Are you hiding it? Are you excusing it? Or are you willing today, as God in His mercy has brought you here to encounter Jesus' teaching, are you willing to admit it? That's a very important question. Now, the disciples have witnessed uh, this miracle. It was really done for them. And in verse 20, the disciples, when they saw the fig tree, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? How did this happen? Um, and the disciples surprise, surprise, seem to have missed totally the point of Jesus' um, demonstration. And instead, they are simply in awe of the power that could cause a tree to wither and die simply by command. Um, Jesus does not rebuke them for this, but he uses it as an opportunity to teach them what is the opposite of hypocrisy. He shows them what life of faith looks like. And in the next couple of verses, Jesus says, he answers them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, it's not the first time we've heard Jesus teach this in, in Matthew. Just a couple of pages back in your Bible in chapter 17, you remember Jesus said these words, Truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Okay. Now, it seems obvious Jesus is not making a literal statement uh, I'm on a retreat to the mountains this week. I am not expecting to command a mountain to be thrown into the sea this week. Okay. It's never happened in the history of Christendom. Believers have never taken this passage literally and said to mountains, jump, and mountains jump into the sea. Obviously, Jesus is using this as a symbol of a of the idea that the disciples will do greater things through prayer even than this miracle, this miracle of the death of a plant. 
said, you're going to do way greater things than that um, if their prayers are born of faith. Now, I didn't just diminish the promise, okay? Because it's not literal doesn't mean that it's less. Jesus really means whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. He means that. He means that that mountain-sized problems are going to change. Miraculous things far greater than a fig tree dying are going to happen when you pray, when the people of faith pray. This is such a staggering promise that often we're not sure what to do with it. Um, just to be honest, there are, if, if this promise is walking right down this main aisle, there are two different ways you can fall off of this promise, and we probably do both. One is to bend the promise too much towards me, okay? where I control God to get what I want. That's what this is about. Um, but this is not a ticket to unblemished health and a ride in a luxury car. That's not what Jesus has in mind. Um, Elsewhere, Jesus, I think uh, someone has counted on six occasions, Jesus makes these kind of blank check prayer promises to us. And on occasion, he'll surround it with some some, uh, shaping ideas. Like in this case, if you have faith. In another place in John, he says, if you abide in me, I'll do whatever you ask. And another place he says, if you ask, whatever you ask in my name. So there are some shaping parameters around this. Um, and these, these kinds of phrases speak of faith born out of a close relationship with God, of access to the Father that aligns our hearts and minds with His. It's not about positive thinking worked up to get what you want from God. Um, where, you know, sometimes it almost feels like people are telling you, you're like the little train that could. And so you say to God, I think you can, I think you can, I think you can, give me a car. Shazam, come on, God. And I don't think Jesus is talking about that. Faith is not an isolated blip that happens when you have a prayer request. Okay? It's not all of a sudden you have a need, so work up faith, work up faith, work up faith, work up faith, so get it. Okay? Faith is a life of abiding with Jesus, of of approaching the Father in His name because you trust that by Jesus' merit you have access to a good Father. And you do that on a daily basis probably. Throughout your day, you are abiding with Jesus. You're walking with Him. You're communing with Him. And that's the context out of which we ask great things of a loving Father, and He does them. Not living a wayward life, a disinterested life, and then all of a sudden we have something we need, and we work up faith, work up faith so we can ask. Those great asks are born out of our abiding with Christ. A life of faith is whereby a request of faith comes from. So we can bend these requests too much to me, where I am in control of God getting what I want. Essentially, that's not the idea. But the other, the other way we can fall off is we can simply explain the promises away and dumb them down so much 
by those statements like abide in me and pray in my name and have faith that they become meaningless to us. We, we have no expectation of God granting our prayers, and that is not what Jesus is about here. I think this is where most of us in our stripe of Christianity, this is where we fall off. We, we're not sure Jesus meant it. Maybe he was just exaggerating. Maybe, maybe it just doesn't work for me. Maybe I'm not holy enough. And we begin to excuse and explain it away. You know, Jesus is really promising that if you pray in faith, miracles are going to happen. People's lives are going to be changed. Needs are going to be met if you pray in faith and do not doubt. He means that. I love um, our staff is studying a book that I would recommend to you by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. And he puts it this way. He says, he says this is, so Jesus is yelling, my father has a big heart. He loves the details of your life. Tell, tell what you need and he will do it for you. He says, Jesus wants us to tap into the generous heart of his father. All of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the gospels, he says, can be summarized with one word, ask. Ask. Jesus' primary concern, he says, is to get us into the game. Pray. Pray in faith. Ask. Ask the Father for what you need. And let that be born out of the communion that is your relationship with Christ. This life of faith that manifests itself in prayer is really the antidote or, or the opposite of hypocrisy. I think that's why Jesus inserts this teaching right up against what he's teaching about hypocrisy. When we pray in faith as we abide in Christ, it's not a show. It's a trust. Our prayer life as an integral part of our communion with God matters a great deal to Jesus. It's interesting. This is one of the earlier teachings in Jesus last week. And one of his last teachings of the week in the garden, one of his teachings there is by his own example about prayer and for his disciples that they should pray and watch because they're so weak, the flesh is so weak. He's teaching about prayer on either ends of the week, on Tuesday morning and on Thursday night. Prayer born of faith helps slay hypocrisy. It pushes us to trust God. It expresses our faith in God. So, in His kindness, God allowed me to teach this this week um, when I, I get this news from the people that are uh, minding our church finances. Okay? We have two more pay periods for our staff on our current giving trend until we have to start cutting salaries. Okay? And, I, and, I, and I want you to know that informationally. Um, our current giving trend, and we have, believe me, we've slashed our expenditures to, to the bone. We aren't even buying coffee for the coffee bar anymore. When it's gone, it's a BYOC affair on, on Sunday mornings, okay? We're not, we're not buying it. Um, we, we're, we're just sustaining uh, our operations here, and that's evident in some bad ways. But uh, in, we have two more pay periods, that's four weeks, and at that point in time, if our giving trend continues as it has in the last month, we won't be able to pay our staff fully. Okay. 
Now, I figure for a number of reasons, I'm probably the first guy in line that's going to face that. And that's as it should be. So, what does that mean? Well, that means that I trust my Father to provide. That doesn't mean I'm not praying. I'm praying more about church finances than I ever have, probably. Praying that God would provide our daily bread for us as people, for us, my family, for the families of our other staff who depend on um, the generosity of God through your generosity. Um, I don't know yet the shape of my prayers. I don't know how much God's going to give us. I don't know how much to ask. I just know that God's going to give us our daily bread. We're going to have what we need to live a life that honors Him. I know that. I'm not panicked about it. Now, I know the temptation is for some of you to hear that and say, well, Larry's not really worried about this. Honey, let's put down the down payment on that Grand Cayman beach house we've been talking about because Larry's confident God's going to provide. Um, You know, the, the options are not panic or disinterest, okay? We're very interested in in these things. These concern us all. And so we pray and we cry out to God. And if we are worried, we cast our cares on Him because we know He cares for us and we trust Him to provide for us. But faith, praying in faith means that you are willing to be a part of the answer to your prayers should God tap you for that. Good chance He's tapping you for that, okay? Um. I don't know that anybody's going to win the lottery and give it to us. I'm not sure what we'd do with that if they did. Um, For us to ask God to meet the needs of our church family in faith is to be available to be part of that. And, uh, you know, with the sending out of two new churches this summer and and a bunch of travel where, honestly, some of you travel and you think you get a pass on your generous giving... It uh, doesn't work that way. Our, but those kinds of things combined have put us uh, in a very tight spot. We have very little margin ever as a church, and we've dipped way into that margin. So join me in praying, in faith, in happy faith, expectant faith, that God's going to take care of this little mountain we have. Okay? This isn't even really a big mountain. It's an important mountain. It's not a big one. Let's trust Him to do it. Let's ask God to do it, and let's watch Him meet our needs. That's kind of what I'm dealing with um, personally as I look at that. And it was kind of God um, to let that coincide with this passage that helps so much. Well, Jesus does the fig tree business, does the prayer teaching on the way into town, And then in verse 23, he enters the temple again. Jesus is back in the temple. Everything's happening around the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching in the temple and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So again, Jesus is lodging outside the city, making his trip back into the temple on a daily basis this week. He's teaching in the temple. He has just run everybody out of the temple the day before. He's healed in the temple, and now he's teaching in the temple. And they want to know, whose authority are you doing this stuff on? This is, a, this is likely a truth squad 
uh, that's been one of the true squads that's been following Jesus around. We've been seeing him. They're, they like jump out and yell, gotcha, and they try to trick him and trap him. This is another one of those scenarios. They don't really want to know. They want to trap him. This is like, um, you know, Jesus here, he's, he's acting like a rabbi, but he doesn't have rabbi credentials. Okay? Whose authority? We, these, the true squad saying, we didn't give you this authority. This is like um, somebody teaching down at the, at the seminary, and they don't have a doctorate. They don't have a master's degree. Okay? They, they, didn't, they didn't make it. They don't have a bachelor's. They probably didn't graduate from high school. Maybe they got a GED, and they're teaching at the seminary, and the accreditation guys show up. And they're like, <laughs> who said you could teach here? We didn't say you could teach here. And it's at this point, those of you who have to deal with accreditation, that I wish Jesus could show up and speak to the accreditation guys um, who subject our fine Christian institutions to non-missional constraints often. But anyway, um, it's, it's really not an honest question. Okay, they are setting a trap. If Jesus says his authority is from some folks, from men, then they're going to say, we're going to arrest you. That's not, that's not a legitimate authority to be teaching and doing this kind of stuff in the temple. If he says it's from God, odds are they'll say, you're blaspheming and we'll arrest you anyway. So they have Jesus. There's no way out. It's a perfect trap. Except that it's Jesus. And let me just say, it's a really bad idea to debate God. Okay? It's a bad idea. Just take it on faith. You're not smarter than God. I know on occasions you think you have these insights where you can do it better than what God has for you. It's not a good idea. It's a bad idea. Don't debate God. I'll show you why. Jesus answers them. I, will also, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. And uh, what, something just happened here, okay? They're not in control anymore. Uh, Jesus has just taken control. In this last week, it's so evident, Jesus is in control. What happens is the Father's plan. And he is marching towards the cross with that radical obedience to the Father that is to inspire us all. And so the question is, uh, the baptism of John, Jesus says. John the Baptist, right? His baptism, his message, his life. Uh, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Okay. This is, this is brilliant, um, the tables have turned, and, and Jesus has them now between a rock and a hard place like they thought they had him. There's, there's really no way for them to win out of this. They are thinking it through. It is a huddle. <laughs> they call a little uh, true squad huddle, and this is what they're saying. They're just talking about it. They discuss amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all that John was a prophet. Okay. So they're, they're in the huddle trying to figure out what do we do with this. Okay. Um, if they say, let me, let me look at them in reverse order. If they say it's from men, 
Well, then the crowds are going to rise up. They might have a riot. And a riot is the one thing that the religious leaders do not want because that can bring Rome down on you. Uh, Rome will not countenance any riots in the city. So if that happens, they're in trouble. Rome is all over them. Um, Now, if they say from heaven, Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him then? And what was John's message? Remember John's message, John the Baptist, back when we studied that? Uh, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The The king has come. Who's the king? John, uh, John would tell us that John the Baptist said, um, Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. That's what he said about Jesus. So if they say that John the Baptist is from God, then they're saying that Jesus is the one that John pointed to. Jesus is from God, that he's the Savior of the world. And the trap they've set for Jesus now, it's been sprung on them. And all they can say is, we don't know. We we don't know. Um, You know, know, this is like kids' hand in the cookie jar. Where'd you get that cookie? I don't know. I mean, that's exactly what we have (laughs) happening here. So Jesus says to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is not being evasive here. He is simply finishing the debate that they started. Okay? He is ending it. Debate over. I win. Okay? And if it seems evasive and harsh, you have to remember who Jesus is talking to and their history with him. These are likely, again, one of those true squads that's been following Jesus around, sent out to trap him time after time after time, the ones who are saying, Jesus, your ministry is from Satan. Jesus, we are plotting to kill you. And that is what they're going to do in three days. That's who Jesus is talking to here. But it is important to realize that there comes a time when they, and possibly we, have so nourished and cherished our inner hypocrite that Jesus simply will write us off. Grant Osborne says, Jesus refuses to reveal heavenly secrets to those who have placed themselves deliberately outside the kingdom. How do you know when you've gone too far? How do you know when you're outside the kingdom and there's no coming back? I think it's when you don't want to come back, when you refuse to repent, when you'd rather hang on to the show, the performance, the ruse, then own up to the fact that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and you come to Jesus and you repent. When you are unwilling to do that, that's one of the signs. When you sustain that place, that's one of the signs. It's a sober warning to every one of us. Don't be like the hypocrites. Root out the hypocrisy that's lurking in the corners of your life. The secret things. The things you're pretending about. So this morning, is is your collar fake? Is it a a clip-on faith that you bring to church once a week? Is Is your week not marked by believing prayer? 
Is that not part of your, the rhythm of your days where you talk to the Father, trusting Him with your needs, praying in faith? Are you just, are you just advertising something that you know is not true? This is a sober warning. But it's also an invitation to repent. Anytime you want to repent, Jesus is ready for you to repent. Anytime you think, I'm done with this. I got to deal with this. Jesus is ready. That's the work of his spirit. It's the kindness of him. That it's, the, it's the kindness of God leading you to that decision. God is active in your life. If you're, if you're willing to repent, and so today we want to close our worship with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, it's a really, really good idea to repent before you come to the table. Not to make this part of the roost, not to make this part of the show, not to make this, you know, where you pretend more, but that you really get alone with God before you come and you, you confess. If there's anything that the Spirit brings to mind, you confess it. And some of you already know. You, as soon as I started talking about hypocrisy, you thought, uh-oh. And then you've been wrestling with, do I own it or do I hide it? And the communion table is a chance for you to own it. Just to say, I confess, Lord, before you, my great need, my great sin. And then you come to the table having confessed and you find in communion with Jesus grace grace to help you in your time of need. So if you'll bow with me, let's approach the table together.